had to decide, I'm gonna put every little penny that I've ever saved in my savings account on the line and put both feet in the water and like, go for this. Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. I want to welcome this week's guest, Tracy Holland, to our show today. Tracy is a leading entrepreneur, investor, and innovator in the beauty and personal care industry. After leaving her successful career in public service, Tracy founded her first business in grad school, where she went all in and invested her student loans to build something that would later be the foundation of her business today. Tracy is a CEO and co-founder of Hatch Beauty, a top beauty and wellness incubator that has grown to be over $100 million in revenue. Tracy is also the founder of Hatch Beauty Ventures, where she advises young women entrepreneurs on business growth and strategy. As a mother of three young children, Tracy is a prime example of how you can balance motherhood with a career and that you don't have to sacrifice one for the other. Welcome to the show, Tracy. Thank you. It's so nice to be here. Of course. And I feel like it's been, gosh, already three years since we last met. And I just remember the first time we had connected, I was so inspired, not only by just who you are as a person, but also how real and transparent you were about motherhood and what it really takes to grow a successful business. And I probably sound like a broken record player on this podcast, but really that's the key element that we look for when we have guests on who can really be honest and take away the fluff on the realities of entrepreneurship and what it takes to also have a family. So I'm super grateful that you're with us and can't wait to jump into it. Yay. Okay, let's do it. So take me back to your childhood. You grew up in a very academic household. Your dad was a nuclear physicist and your mom has a PhD. How do you think that really impacted your upbringing and specifically your journey into the entrepreneurial world? You know, ironically, I think some people are born entrepreneurs Mm -hmm. and to my parents' dismay, I definitely was. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) And so as much as they wanted me to be academically focused, I was always looking at ways I could generate money. And so as a young kid, I would put on plays and do um, neighborhood events and look for ways to to generate income. And then when I turned 12, I started a pie making business after school. I employed my sisters and we would go around the neighborhood with taste tests and get pre-orders. And I would use the pre-orders to buy supplies and then we'd make pies. And that became a pretty lucrative business. And my father would be so annoyed because he'd come home and the kitchen would be a mess and there'd be, you know, 30 pies cooling around the house. <laughs> and and um, he shut that down after about four months. And so I think I would tell you that both my parents' work ethic was always impactful to me in terms of understanding that whatever it is we choose to do in our life, we need to put our whole self in in order to be successful. But I think that my parents both felt threatened or critical of maybe my path of being an entrepreneur and I, not because of what they thought of me personally, but I think job security, Mm -hmm. a 401k, a pension, good insurance, having a, you know, 
formal vacation PTO plan, all of those things they value very much and feel like that is a sign of success and making your way up through a large corporate uh, entity and hitting certain milestones is what they're familiar with as success. And so we very much saw the world differently. And I think they wanted to ensure that I would be able to support myself in a way that would allow me to live a lifestyle that they had already provided. So yeah, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners can really resonate with that. I know I definitely can, similar to you. I was very entrepreneurial as a kid, always had different ideas. And my father, who is the ultimate entrepreneur, was incredibly supportive. But as I got older, I you know, fell into the track of what you're expected to do, right? So I studied finance. I went into investment banking. I got my dream job, or so I thought at the time. But a few years into that, I was unhappy. And whenever I'd have a conversation with my father about potentially leaving or working on a startup or doing my own thing, you know, he was a little hesitant and he would, you know, really kind of mentor me to stay because I was doing so well, I was getting promoted and, you know, my early 20s making pretty good money. So, you know, it's interesting to kind of see your parents' expectations of you. And I'm curious for you, you know, how did you manage what you personally wanted to do in your life versus really the expectations of your own parents? Yeah, I, I think so. In my teen years, my parents sent me to a reform school uh, for two years. And, in a, and that school was very rigid. So no social time, no boyfriends, no music, no TV, no movies. Um, actually, you go to school Monday through Saturday, seven to four, and then you do work crews or you do some sort of activity that's heavy, what I would call kind of heavy labor. Mm-hmm. And also wilderness survival trips and some aspects of kind of learning how to be self-sustaining. Um, and I think they did that with good intentions because at the time I was a pretty, I was pretty sassy, but I never was a bad kid per se. I didn't do drugs and I wasn't doing things I shouldn't be um, in that context, but I certainly was sassy. And I think um, even at 15, 16, I was challenging whether or not I thought high school was really that important. I thought, you know, really, what are we learning that's really impactful? I could go start my first business. I could be earning money now. Mm -hmm. I I pitched my dad on letting me take my GED so I could go start like a salon or do something. I thought I could do a spa or something interesting. And he, and then about a week later I disappeared and was uh, put into the school. And so that, if, if that gives you any insight into how differently we saw the world Mm -hmm. that shares, that shares for you, how completely like, like not a fit I was for my family culture, so to speak. I think today they love me unconditionally as they did then. I think their technique, because I was the oldest child and they didn't know what else to do other than try and figure out how to put me in a place that I couldn't, you know, opt out of a traditional high school education. I wasn't going to end up not taking my academics seriously because being in a reform school environment you have nothing else to do other than study. So I got straight A's coming out of high school. Wow. (laughs) I had like a 4.2 because 
if you're going to school Monday through Saturday. Yeah. What else are you doing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love it. No, that's super interesting. And it seems like you kind of stayed on that academic route because you applied to business school. I mean, you went to yeah. undergrad, you know, what was your motivation around going to grad school? I didn't, you know, it, it's actually interesting because I think when I got out of high school and I didn't really know what I wanted to do as I, as most people who decide they're going to go to undergrad and they had a, a formal direction of something they wanted to study per se, I thought I really just, you know, wasn't sure. Um, and so I ended up going to the Fashion Institute of Design for my first two years. And I studied a lot around merchandising and making product and distribution and understanding retail and the economics of how to do business at retail, which um, I learned formally there. And then I transferred to San Francisco State and did a marketing and international relations undergrad, which both the international relations was my passion for politics, frankly, and my passion for kind of how the world saw each other and one another and what the economic opportunities were outside of the U.S. And then going to uh, Columbia, I actually got my master's in organizational development, which is around change management and integrating small businesses to large and kind of the five instrumental steps that a company goes through. And they either iterate and expand and grow to the next stage or they don't and they, they go out of business. Each of the stages of my, uh, my educational career were frankly built on the fact that I kept recognizing that I was smart and I was getting feedback from the academic world that I actually was smart and that I could get good grades. And because that was the KPI mm -hmm. by which you're measured, and I never felt like I was really smart when I was younger, I thought I, I wasn't as smart as the other kids for some reason. and that academics wasn't my strength. As I gained my confidence in myself, I allowed myself to expand into the possibility of being able to even go to a school like Columbia. Like even someone like a Columbia University would consider, you know, me as someone that would be a peer felt like a stretch. And each of these validating steps has been a crucial stage in my own development and confidence in building a business and asking for more in terms of business income, order size, you know, the corporate entities that I do business with. It, it was actually foundationally crucial to have had those opportunities to step into the confidence that these large institutions, I feel, gave me in myself that I could actually compete. I think confidence is just so incredibly important. And we talk a lot about it on the show with all of our guests. And I think whatever way you can incorporate that into your own life, for example, for you, you were doing well in academics and that really gave you the confidence that you needed that you could really be great and excel in something. You know, last week we spoke to Heidi Zach, the founder of Third Love, and she was saying how all her different professional experiences really allowed her to really come into herself and be confident and eventually start Third Love in her 30s. So I think whatever you can incorporate in your life to really build that confidence is just so incredibly essential for taking a big risk and leap into the entrepreneurial world. 
So I actually came across an article where you mentioned that you had goals and aspirations of going and getting your MBA. And you unfortunately ended up becoming waitlisted, which I'm sure for someone who is so academically focused at the time, that must have been a huge hit to your confidence and your ego. But what I think is really interesting about your story is, although you were waitlisted in the grad, the MBA program, that didn't really stop you in the tracks and push you back. You immediately pivoted and started exploring different master's programs. And you ended up getting your master's in social organizational psychology. And that's really when you started your first business. So I'd love to hear more about the journey because clearly that has really led you to building, you know, one of the top beauty and wellness incubators in the industry today. That was so fun. (laughs) You know, funny, life is so amazing, right? When you connect in the hindsight and you see the dots, but you don't understand it as you look at it in the moment and you're thinking, how am I going to navigate this? But um, I was so fortunate because. I had a really good girlfriend who happened to be a forensic chemist for the Department of Justice. And so by day, very CSI style, she was like on the scene with dead bodies and doing blood spatters. And, but she was actually a chemist, a a Mm. formulating chemist. And, you know, we came up with this idea for scented nail polish and, and we only did it because it was practically speaking like this. I love doing my nails. She does too. And it smells so bad. And, and, you know, when you're putting on your nail polish and even for those women in salons who have to do that work, it's a labor of love because it doesn't smell good. And so we started playing with this idea, like, I wonder if we could scent this and, and really diffuse the scent. But then it became about like, I wonder if we could scent it and have it last. And so while we were working uh, together, she was in her job and I was starting, I was at I was working in politics, but then starting uh, grad school. Um, We worked on various iterations of a formula using food grade oils and really figuring out how to modify the formula so it could still dry, still be dry hard and retain the scent. And at that time, we had actually cracked the code weirdly on, on different iterations and based on whatever scent we were using it would last for maybe a day, the smell versus some scents would last five or six days. Um, And so we started doing various iterations. And then I remember the first time we showed it to JCPenney and we just had it bottled by a supplier. I used my my student loans at Columbia because my parents were helping me with school. So I I actually um, financed the original intellectual property using student loans. Um, yeah, I was going to say, would you recommend that to no, others? <laughs> okay. No. And honestly, you your know, parents know you did that. They do now. And of course I graduated with, you know, some student debt and I paid that off obviously over time, but you know, it shows you that women and young people who want to start a business, it's hard to do that if you don't have working capital. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so we got vendor, uh, vendor terms, which allowed us to finance the business and then, of course, we used student loans. And then I got a big order from JCPenney. How did you get in front of JCPenney? I'm sure people listening today are in awe about how, you know, this side business that you were building for scented nail polish really got bigger and you were able to even get in front of such a large account. So can you walk us through that process? At the time, 
and it still works, I think. Actually, it's a, maybe a different method, but um, you call the operator and then you say, um, I'm looking for someone in the buying office. And they would say, um, do you have a name? And you'd say, no. And they would say, okay, well, when you call us back with a name, we'll forward you. Uh, and so you kind of play like a little bit of phone round robin, you know, yeah. with extensions. And then you hear an extension and you hear, hi, this is Sally Smith. Please leave a message. And then you call back and say, hey, can you put me through Sally Smith's? And, you know, it was just a couple days of round robin. <laughs> yeah, I love it. <laughs> to locate the right, right? To locate <laughs> the right buyer. Um, and so she said, oh, you have sent to nail polish, send me samples and send me an order form or, you know, a price list and a sales sheet. I, I, I've never seen sent to nail polish, send it to me. We sent her samples. We explained to her how it worked. And then she invited us to Texas, said, come make a presentation. We'd love to see it. And we immediately opened 400 doors of distribution. She wanted fixtures, which we had no idea how to make. And, um, she wanted her first order and we said we need the actual purchase order to get started with this because we don't have this sitting around to ship you so we we have to make it um and spencer's gift had us make a special range of products for them and so that allowed us some financing because we made gasoline and baby diapers and a couple of other scents that were you know, kind of fun and more gag type sense for Spencer's gifts. And so each of these situations as they would come up, we would try to navigate, you know, we have a $450,000 order. It's going to cost us a hundred thousand to make. How do we do this? And so figuring out how to take an asset, which is a purchase order and look at where you can take that and leverage that was really a new concept. For us, obviously, because we had never had familiarity, but there are so many people who step in to help you navigate those type of conversations and having mentors has been the way I've always operated. So it's been just kind of trial by error. Yeah, it's incredible that you dove right in and you weren't intimidated to build this business, even if you didn't have that background. And as you really took one step at a time, each problem you would figure out by really leaning into mentors, which definitely has been a huge help also in my life in these different projects that I'm working on. So the business that you're working on in grad school, is that what eventually turned into Hatch Beauty? No, actually what happened was that business ended up, the brand itself failed. So it we ended up having to close down the brand and shut down all the product and we had to write off what we couldn't use. What caused um, it to fail at the time? It just wasn't properly marketed and financed. You know, once we got into retail, you have to imagine the execution portion of the retail process for a new product like this requires someone to sit there and say, hey, would you like me to paint your nails? This is scented. Why this nail polish is unique and different. And, and then you have to imagine people be like, scented, that's weird. What does that mean? And through, through some of the retail distribution we got, we were called by Elizabeth Arden, the CEO at the time was CEO of French Fragrances, and they owned the Elizabeth Arden brand, and they owned Sunflower Fragrances. Um, and so this, they called us and said, hey, we would like to know if you could create a clear top coat out of the Sunflower Fragrance for us, and we're going to put it into our, our range of Sunflower 
fragrance product. And of course, I'm sitting in my studio in on 91st and Broadway, you know, because <laughs> that was where my big office was, which was 12 by, I think, nine feet or so. Oh, wow. Which is also my home, which is yeah. also partially my sample room. And, <laughs> and customer service too. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, sure, I think so. I think we could accommodate that. Let us think about, you know, what, how many units are you thinking? And they said 450,000. And I thought, oh, okay. I think we could probably work work to that. And so uh, that was probably our biggest order that we secured. And it was quite profitable. And so I went out and I raised a quarter million dollars from a, uh, a private, he invested privately, but he was an individual who owned several uh, investments, well-known investments, a very well-known uh, finance guy out of New York. And so he wired $250,000 to my account, uh, personal account, because at that time I was kind of keeping the checking through QuickBooks, believe it or not, and trying to keep that up. Um, and then I realized we had a real business, but what he did was secured the IP with the money. Oh, wow. So, and then there was quite a hefty um, uh, interest rate payment and then obviously a balloon payment at the end of two and a half years. and collateralized and secured by the IP. And so when we were at periods of time not able to make our interest payment, and then as the blue payment was approaching, um, we had to forfeit the IP, which then he flipped and sold for quite a nice, a nice amount. And we were left with, wow. you know, the residual inventory. And I was left at that point with maybe about 150000 in debt from the different, you know, loans and things that I had paid through myself. So it was the best learning experience of my life because I couldn't be where I am today had I not learned that lesson. Mm -hmm. And he didn't do anything wrong. He hadn't, he, he did a secured note in essence with a high interest rate and he took a, a chance with a young entrepreneur with a big idea but the asset i realized that we had that was valuable was the intellectual property nothing mattered other than that it did it didn't matter the brand didn't matter the intellectual property was what he was seeking and so i spent my career focused on ip deals mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. making sure that whatever we develop we own the ip that's good for anyone listening today who's also developing their own brand so at that point, your business has wound down, you're $150,000 in debt. What, what was going on in your mind at that point? And what were your next steps? That was a dark time. I mean, I really, I really was in a bad situation because all of my graduate school partner friends had left to go work for big companies. They were at mm -hmm. KPMG, they were at Anderson, they all had GE, they had these big jobs, huge paychecks. And I ended up taking a job at a contract manufacturer out of Azusa, California. I think I made, I think he paid me like 90,000 a year. And which at the time compared to my friends was like peanuts. And um, he said, I need you to help me build my shampoo business back up. I'm doing a lot of discounting and I don't, I'm not getting full margin and I don't know what to do with this. And so it was a company called Lanza and they manufacture and distribute hair care professionally and then through diverted channels. 
And so I, I just went and took a real gig and I spent some time reassessing. And from there, I learned manufacturing. I really learned how to make widgets. I learned how to formulate. I learned how to look at margin, um, efficacy of product, how to look at filling lines and, you know, what efficiencies were needed in order to support a factory. And then I started bringing in additional new filling partners for them because they frankly needed support and keeping their people busy. And I did, I worked that in the, what I would call kind of an, a younger, smaller entrepreneurial. They were doing maybe about 200 million in revenue as a company. And I took that and built that for them and brought in additional new pit filling business partners and filling clients. And from that opportunity, I found a young company of three women who had started a spa party business and everything came in paint cans. So all of these kind of girl gathering kids and girl power. And I, I left uh, Lanza to go help them build their spa and girl power business and girl gathering kit business. And I raised two rounds of capital for that business. And I had a board of 21 people and I realized what it takes to raise money, you know, taking one check at a time, one pitch at a time for 25,000 or 50,000 and what it means to have people trust you enough to like open their checkbook and, and bank on you. And so I did that and had a pretty wily board, obviously 21 people. I don't think I've ever heard of a board with that many people. And that was a learning experience. And I also learned that I would never run a family run company that had a shareholder base of 51% or more where you raise capital because the family does deals over Thanksgiving and Christmas and, um, you know, on Saturdays with margaritas by the pool. And because they have 51%, they can implement whatever they decide. And when you take people's money and give a business plan, you need to be able to, to manage to that. And, and so I had a, a real opportunity to learn. And I ran that company for three years and felt really lucky to learn how to navigate and grow up in straddling, you know, family, family run politics in mm -hmm. a business and then navigating, you know, managing uh, investors and thinking through like, what do I want on my return and how does that look? Wow. What a wealth of experiences, especially for someone who you know, is eventually going to start their own business. But it seems like you really learn the whole gamut of really building a brand from scratch from both of the businesses that you were in, whether it was from learning how to raise money from investors or manufacturing or sales, bringing on new clients. NIP, that, that was for sure. I knew as I was departing there. And honestly, I thought they had a great business. We grew up very successfully, had an offer from a very large strategic and I was excited because I had 5% of the company in equity. And I thought for sure we're going to transact. And at the, the 11th hour, the sisters said, you know, we're going to hold on to the business and keep it for ourselves. But my aha was I need to be able to really run my own program and, and do what I think is the right thing to do for growth. And so I did. I had a, a vision for Hatch. But it the beginning, I didn't have enough working capital to, to finance the growth. So my first really big account 
was CVS and for Hatch Beauty. And I had taken a concept that I saw in the market and I saw a organic skincare brand called Juice Beauty. And they had about nine doors of distribution at Sephora. And I approached the CEO and I said, nobody in mass is doing organic skincare. How about if we do a sub brand or a diversion brand called Juice Organics and I'll create an exclusive, um, exclusive brand for CVS under the Juice Organics brand and you'll pay me a retainer and a percentage of sales and then I'll drive that almost as its own sub, sub entity for you. And I did that uh, and then what I realized in that situation was my reputation was what opened that retail distribution. Mm -hmm. Our first purchase order I think was about three and a half million um, for that brand and once and, and it was a retainer that really gave you the working capital to you so you didn't raise money it was just that's through right. that okay. but i had the brand financing inventory so i was almost acting as an agent okay. or a broker or an agent and and because we had an exclusive deal with cvs meaning we won't take this out to any other retailers you'll get it for a 12-month period you know the, my aha in this was they, at the time, they were very excited. They got their first $3 million PO. Yes, we'll fill it. Yes, this is great. We're so excited. And then about six weeks after it shipped, um, they chose as a business to go to the NACDS show and have a booth. I think what that signaled to our retail partner was that they were going to distribute beyond the exclusive in a way that could you know, obviously show up in other retail stores and challenge them. And I think, and of course, that was their business decision and there was no obligation otherwise. It was really kind of an, an understanding or a handshake. But so it wasn't that they were doing something wrong and CVS's understanding was that they were going to stay exclusive. I think my aha in that was as much as this broker role is great because there's no risk or cash out of pocket, what, what, what you have to remember is it's really your reputation that people are doing business with and they're trusting you. And so you can't really obligate a company to do what you want them to do as this broker person in the middle. It's either your brand, your obligation, your commitment or, or not. So that, that was my really like, I had to decide I'm going to put every little penny that I've ever saved in my savings account on the line and put both feet in the water and like, go for this. Go for yeah. And I'm going to be writing checks and I'm going to be owning inventory and I'm going to be asking vendors to give me extended terms and I'm going to be vendor of record and mm -hmm. I'm going to, I'm going to ship this myself. <laughs> Yeah, that's a huge jump to, like you said, put both your feet in and just jump in and really invest every dollar you have into this business, especially with someone with your background who had such strong relationships with these various retailers from your experience. I'm sure, you know, going down the path to fundraising and raising money for your company was an option, but you really wanted to have full control of your business, which is fantastic. You know, whether, you know, you were trying to be creative in extending payments to your vendors so you can really use 
that cash to, you know, build the company. I think the fact that you were being creative to really maintain the control of your company, you know, probably because of the various experiences you had in the past is, is really great to hear. Well, and honestly, it's really like the, the biggest thing that I think is true is after spending some time doing what you do, you start developing a reputation, whether good, bad, or indifferent, right? And people start to know your name. And so what was absolutely, it's so incredibly important for me was to ensure that whatever I told someone I could do, that I could actually follow through and execute. And it was the only way I knew I could control the outcome. That definitely makes sense. And your reputation in business and your career is always incredibly important. So I want to shift gears and talk about another amazing aspect of your life and how you're a huge proponent of women, you know, being able to have both career and kids. I'd love to hear more about your own motherhood journey and, you know, your life being a CEO of this amazing company and also a mother of three kids. It's so important. Yeah, I think, you know, the thing that nobody tells you as a woman when you're in your 20s is... And in my 20s, and you have to keep me honest if you disagree, is we all think we can have babies as long as we want. Like, I feel good. I'm young. I feel healthy. If I'm 36, I'm 37, I'm 38, it'll be fine. Mm -hmm. Medical science, everything's great. And you're at the height of your, your trajectory in your career, 31, 32, 33 where things for me were moving really quickly. I mean, I made my business made my first, my first million dollars that free and clear that the business generated was when I was 31 and then 32, you know, it was like 2 million um, and the business made. And I thought, Oh my gosh, this is like incredible. I mean, this is, this is bigger than my wildest dreams at the time, even though I knew I just didn't really, really understand how big I could grow once I understood how to implement a process. And then 33, I had broken up with someone who I was really in love with and I thought I was going to end up marrying. And he at the time said, hey, um, I'm going to go do this, this thing with this startup. Uh, there are these two guys, Larry and Sergey. They have this really big idea. I have this big thing. I, I think I want to go be part of it. And I, I, I said, well, what is it? And he said, well, it's, it's a search engine. And, and I thought, I don't understand why that's important. Um, and what's the way to generate revenue? None of it made sense. I think I was 31 when he's explaining it to me. Um, and we tried to make it work long distance and with him starting up with this startup and, and what that looked like. And it just, commuting to Palo Alto and trying to figure that out. By 33, I thought I have no boyfriend. I have a really robust career. I have no prospects. And I'm definitely wanting to have children. What do we, what do we do? Like, what do I do really? And I went to 33, I went to the OBGYN for my annual checkup and, and we talked business and how are you and all the good stuff. And then he said, so 
Trace, you're not you're de- you're not gonna have kids then, right? Is that your plan? And I said, well, of course I'm gonna have kids. Like, there's no <laughs> thing I want more in life. Yeah, people just assume kids. you don't want it. It's like, where did right. you get that from? Yeah, he goes, so no, no kids. And I said, of course I'm gonna have like four. And he goes, no, you're not. And I said, what do you mean? And I said, of course I am. And he said, Trace, listen, by the time you're 35, assuming you are at 100% fertility, when you hit 35, you're now at 80%. But guess what? How many women do we know that are at 100% from day one? Because you've never been pregnant, you actually don't know your percentage. You could be starting at 50%. And so at 35, you turn into 35 to 36, you go to 30%. But what if you started already at 20%? And so as because I'm a numbers person, I left this, you know, what was supposed to be just an annual exam in a total panic. And I literally spent six months thinking, okay, I need to get married and I need to get pregnant. And so I ended up marrying my friend who uh, was someone I really enjoyed and had great, um, great conversation with. And I had a lot of respect for, and I like him very much. Um, but I was not, not my love of my life, but definitely wanted to have kids. Mm-hmm. And so we definitely pushed hard to have children right away. And there was just no question because I think thing that we need to remember is that there are only really a couple legs on the stool. Like, first of all, you need three legs on a stool for it to work. Mm-hmm. Otherwise the stool falls down. So if you think about career, love, kids, self, maybe there are four legs. Yeah. You know, I don't know if it's actually realistic, nor if it's aspirational to think that you can squeeze in by, let's say, 33, all four of those legs successfully. Mm -hmm. So then you have to start asking yourself, what are you willing to give up to get? And I thought to myself, my career is so fulfilling, and I want children, and I definitely um, want to have a partner who's kind and who will be a good father. And so it's not the love story that I think people would hope for. And in fact, I don't know how to reconcile it other than to just say, I remember what my process of thinking through it was and talking to my friends and trying to figure it out. And so having children and incorporating them into my day-to-day work, but there was definitely like a, a program, right? So you have the nanny, you have the glider, you have the diaper genie, you have your baby Bjorn, you are nursing between meetings, that baby's strapped to your body, you hand it to the nanny, the nanny, you walk into a conference, you come out an hour later, you nurse, you hand the baby back, they do a diaper change, you know, it mm-hmm. was like... It takes a village to... It was a script. Yeah. It was a playbook. For sure. And I want to acknowledge you for opening up about your own journey to motherhood. And as women, as we get older, you know, the reality is the probability declines in terms of having children. I mean, that doesn't mean you can't. I have a handful of good friends who, you know, are older 30s or even in their 40s who've had very healthy kids. But I think 
this is still important to talk about. And, you know, similar to you, everybody has their own journey to motherhood. And I think you can write your own script. So again, I acknowledge you for sharing that. And also, I think it's completely admirable how you're, you know, managing a very successful company with three children. And how old are they now? Nine, 11, and 13. Amazing. And their dad lives about two and a half miles from me. And we have a great co-parenting, um, you know, team approach mm-hmm. and he's happy and I'm happy. And, and it's been, a it's been a learning plan because I don't think you go into your marriage or into a relationship and think this isn't going to be forever. Mm-hmm. And certainly you don't go through the process of getting married and say to yourself, this isn't my ever forever person. Um, but I did. And I don't, I don't know how to reconcile that other than being kind to one another as we are to each other with being the best parents we can be knowing that we had a really great 10 year experience of learning how to be parents for the first time and allowing my, the gift I received from him is he really allowed me to be my best self and to Mm -hmm. learn how to be um, a really successful entrepreneur. And we, I think successful entrepreneurs need a person at home who's their like biggest cheerleader Mm -hmm. and who can support some of what feels crazy at times. So he gave me all those things. It was great. That's so beautiful and such a gift to even experience. I could probably do a whole nother podcast on relationships with you, but I want to be mindful of your time and close on a question that we love to ask all of our guests. Wealth means so much more than money and everybody has our own definition of wealth. What does that mean to you? Hmm. It's changed so much um, because I used to say, if I have $15 million in liquidity, then then... I would earn, you know, 750,000 a year passive income. And then whatever else I do would be just, you know, kind of fun money. And I had this whole, you know, formula. And then um, what I realized is that money has, at a certain point, money actually, if you allow it, has power over you rather than you realize it's just a tool or vehicle for you to enjoy and expand into joy. And so really money's there to support your expansion into happiness and joy. Mm -hmm. And what I found, the more money I had, the more I worried about whether I would maintain and keep it, where I was investing it, what my return was, whether it was being well utilized. And I became heavy in that. And I, I recognize that sometimes our perspectives or beliefs, one belief I used to have is you have to work really hard to earn money. And mm-hmm. now I recognize that that's absolutely a false belief. It, money's passing around us right now. It's all over us. It's everywhere. And all money is is a conversion of energy and, and intent into a physical form, right? And so I have more what I would consider personal wealth 
that has nothing to do with money, but personal happiness, which is the connection that I have between my perception of where I am in my life and my expectations of where I should be. So the perception of where I should be in my life and my expectations for myself are met and they, they meet and that allows me to feel happy. But I honestly, I have to tell you, I have not looked at my investment portfolio in six months. I get these sweet little messages from Ella Vest who manages my portfolio of investments and they send me these weekly don't worry messages, which yeah, I love. Yeah. Sally Krawcheck is like one of my heroes. I love her and Ella Vest and everything she? they do. Big fan. She's remarkable. And yeah. she's such a she's such a gem. And they send me these sweet little love messages like things are bad. We know. Don't worry. It'll come back or whatever. I haven't even looked because if I allow that to drive how I perceive my worth or my security or my happiness, we're all going to be in trouble, you mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. So in my, in my mornings, I wake up and I do have a gratitude journal, which I think sounds a little LA kitschy, but it's, it really works for me. And I just look at every single thing that I could hope or want is met in my life. Like I have, you know, warm water and I have lighting and I have a beautiful fireplace and my kids are fed. And if I need to go see a doctor, I can. And it's like, it's, it's okay. You know? So I've never felt well wealthier than I am now, but I think if you were to look at my investments, COVID, you know, March or April 8th, post, post this 20,000 Dow number, whatever it is, which I don't know what it is. I haven't looked, but if I looked at it, I'd probably say that's a problem. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's temporary. It's temporary. So yeah, because all our needs are met. Exactly. I'm not hungry. Are you hungry? No, we're very right. blessed. We're very right. blessed. Yeah. True. So. No, that was amazing. Well, Tracy, thank you so much for taking the time and chatting with us. I loved our conversation. Yeah. I love talking to you. I'm so excited about what you're doing. And I have so many women entrepreneurs who I am in such awe of that would be wonderful for you to connect with. Oh, amazing. Who inspire me and who teach me all the time about myself, about how I see the world, about how I think about money, driving businesses. So what a incredible tribe to have around you and I so appreciate that Tracy thank you mm -hmm.